Grace, mercy, and peace to you from God our Father, from our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, and from the Holy Spirit. Amen. Special welcome to those of you watching online. If you are just watching just the sermon portion, uh, go ahead and check out the readings for the day. I'll be referencing those throughout today's message. Today, as indicated by my lovely palm shirt, is Palm Sunday. Uh, so you have your little palm fronds there. You're all ready to go with those. Now you have them. That's, that's pretty much it. It's, wave them in the air. There you go. I got some waving over there. Uh, Palm Sunday, it's really, it's the beginning of, of Holy Week. It's the first step on this journey to, to Easter, to that celebration of a risen Lord. But, but there's a long way to go to get there. And this week, really, the, the story of Jesus takes center stage. See, it's really easy for us in the church as modern Christians to take Christianity and almost reduce it down to, to philosophy, uh, to the teachings of Jesus. Right there, there are miracles, there are stories that we kind of emphasize, but usually those serve to just support the philosophy. But as you get into Holy Week, it's all action. It's all about what's actually happening. We really, we shift from philosophy to history. And so today we're going to begin that journey towards Easter, passing through Maundy Thursday and Good Friday. But we start with Palm Sunday and the triumphal entry. But before we go there, if you could join me in prayer. Lord God, Heavenly Father, Lord, thank you for today for this chance where we can come together and worship you, whether here in person or online, wherever and whenever that may be. Lord, I pray that you bless this time, bless this message. Lord, let there be more of you and less of me. Lord, I, I submit myself to you, and I pray that everybody who hears this would be willing to do the same, that they'd be willing to submit themselves to your Holy Spirit, to work in a powerful way, to speak truth to each and every one of us. Lord, give us the courage and the strength to listen as we ask you to speak. Pray all these things through your son Jesus. In his name, amen. Now, Palm Sunday uh, can be easy to kind of just look at it in terms of, of the postcard, right? You got your palms and, and the people shouting Hosanna. Maybe even have as far as like them laying the coats on the road to, to create sort of a red carpet, if you will. Um, you got Jesus on the donkey and, and all of that, right? But what is act, actually going on here? what's actually happening when it comes to the triumphal entry, which is another name for it. What's going on as we look at this story? See, for Jesus, this is significant because the triumphal entry was the first time that Jesus entered into Jerusalem, the, the, the main place, the head of it all, the first time he entered into Jerusalem in his public ministry. He'd been in Jerusalem before. We know this because when he was a kid, remember the story of him teaching in the temple? That was in Jerusalem. Uh, but since he has really entered into the public scene some three years prior to this, he hadn't been in Jerusalem. He'd been kind of going around to these small cities. And it's kind of a big deal that he's finally going to Jerusalem. It's like a, an up-and-coming country singer suddenly going to Nashville, finally, and getting a chance to, to sing the big gig, right? That's what's happening with Jesus. He's just kind of been touring around at these smaller places. And the city is, is a buzz. It is packed. Uh, it's middle of Passover, uh, the biggest feast, the biggest festival that the people of Israel would have been celebrating, and they often would take a pilgrimage to Jerusalem, so they're all there. And on top of them just being excited because it's, you know, like everybody's together, there's also this talk of this rabbi, Jesus of Nazareth. 
And there's a good reason that they're talking about him because he just took somebody who was dead and made him alive again. That kind of would start some buzz. That would kind of get people interested in what he's teaching. So they're literally talking about Jesus. It says in the prior chapter that they spent time kind of talking amongst these, like, hey, you figure Jesus is going to be here? Like they're excited and anticipating the arrival of Jesus. It is a big deal. And so when he gets there in any fashion, they're all going to be excited. But he doesn't just get there in any fashion. No, he gets there in very dramatic fashion. See, Jesus arrives riding a donkey. And like to us, like, seems like an odd choice. Doesn't mean a whole lot. But for the people of Israel who had scripture memorized, their minds instantly go to that Zechariah verse. Instantly go back to this prophecy about the Messiah. They're going, oh, oh, he... He's riding a donkey. Oh, so he's talking like Zechariah. He's talking like king of kings. He's talking king of Israel types. Oh, this is a big deal, right? And in fact, there's some connections because King Solomon back in 1 Kings, he actually was kind of coronated by riding King David's donkey. And so there's significance when it comes to this, this donkey situation, right? And the people respond the right way. They take their palm fronds and they go out and they start shouting, Hosanna. Hosanna, which means save us, essentially, um, which seems odd, but ultimately what that is, that's a proclamation of a king. That's saying, we trust in you to save us. It's something that would have been reserved for a kingly procession. They're recognizing him and giving him significance. And what's the deal with the palms? Like, you know, we got these palms, we got like one little palm front. Um, what's the deal with those? Well, there are some traditions that connect with the palms. One, there's there is some Jewish tradition. Um, Yehu, the son of Jehoshaphat, he was welcomed with palms. That doesn't seem to have a huge connection there. The palms are also found in the Hebrew festival of Sukkot. Not really a big thing there. Um, Egyptians used palms in funeral processions, which is kind of interesting, but probably not connected to what we're talking about here. It's especially interesting given what was going to happen in Jerusalem for Jesus. But the big connection with the palms is with the Romans, actually. There was something called the Roman Triumph. It was essentially a, a, a long festival that Romans would have for returning war heroes. And part of that was a procession where they would wave palms in the air because palms had kind of taken on this connection with the, uh, the Roman goddess Nike, of which we get Nike the company now. So if it, there weren't religious connotations, then instead of the Nike swoosh, you very easily could have had a palm branch as their logo. And so what they're doing is essentially they're waving these palm branches, which is they're shouting Hosanna, a, a, an Israelite blessing of a king. They're waving Roman palm branches, which is a nod to the culture that they're in. And so you, you really couldn't fault the Pharisees for looking at this whole scene going, uh-oh, <laughs> kind of a problem here, guys, right? It's, it's interesting what's happening because essentially they're, they're putting significance on Jesus, Right? When, when I was in high school, I played uh, high school football, and at the pregame meal, there was a table set for starters, and, and all the, the first team, they'd all kind of sit at the same table. And if you sat there, that was a big deal. It's kind of like in soccer, there are certain numbers that you wear that signify that you're, you're expected to perform, whether that be number nine, number 10, you're expected to kind of be the guy in that position. Or, or if you're in theater, if you're more of the theater-minded person, it's the person who has like the last curtain call, right? That means that you're significant. It's putting significance on that person. The expectation is there. And so the same thing is happening 
to Jesus. And so the Pharisees are looking on and they're saying, hey guys, this is kind of a problem because their whole intention was preserving their mindset, preserving their interpretation of God's word. That was their whole goal. That was their job, was to preserve the world and their interpretation of God's word. So let's take a look. If we look in the previous chapter, um, if you have your Bible, go ahead and flip to uh, John chapter 11. If not, don't worry about it. I'll read it. John chapter 11. We're going to start at verse 45. We're going to go all the way through 54. This is right after Jesus took Lazarus, who was for sure dead, and then made him for sure alive. Okay? It says this, Many Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, bring Lazarus back to life, believed in him. Yeah, it's kind of a big deal, right? But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, what are we going to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. That was their concern. That Jesus was perhaps being seen as this political leader, and they were afraid that the Romans would come and essentially remove the Israelites for being insurrectionists, if you will. Now, there's also some selfish motivations. We'll get into that in a moment. Um, but it says this, but one of them, Caiaphas, who was a high priest that year, said to them, you know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. He did not say this of his own accord, but being the high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation. In other words, he's saying, hey guys, if, if this Jesus is left to live, there's a chance that the Roman government could like kick us all out again or even possibly kill us. So it's better for Jesus to die and the rest of the Jews to live, which unknowingly, he basically said that's what's going to happen, is Jesus is going to die so that the rest of the world would live. It's funny because I don't think that's what Caiaphas meant. But here's God speaking through the chief priests, right? Um, so then it, he goes on to say, and not for that nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered from abroad. So from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. But don't miss the next verse here. This is verse 54. Jesus, therefore, no longer walked openly among the Jews, right? Like, if people are trying to kill you, you don't, like, go walk into the middle of them. So he kind of stayed away, but went from there to a region near the wilderness to a town called Ephraim. And there he stayed with his disciples. Why does that name sound familiar? Well, if you were paying attention on our Old Testament reading, that Zechariah verse that referenced the Messiah, there are two towns mentioned. There's the chariot of Ephraim and the war horse of Jerusalem. What two towns are now involved in this story? Ephraim and Jerusalem. So the people of Israel are going, okay, this Jesus guy's legit. The Pharisees are going, this Jesus guy's a problem, and we got to do something about it. And so they come together and devise this plan to kill him. Because remember, the whole purpose for the Pharisees was to preserve God's law, or at least their interpretation of God's law. Their preconceived notion, their understanding of what God demanded of the world. And unfortunately, they had added a lot to God's law. And what happened is essentially this. Jesus came along, took all those laws that they had added and said, no. In fact, I'm going to simplify and bring it down to two. 
love God and love your neighbor. And if your whole job is to maintain all these other laws and this other guy comes along and says there's only two, it's kind of intimidating and probably a bit of a problem. I mean, just take, for example, when Jesus is confronted with the woman caught in adultery. According to Leviticus, she should be killed. According to God's law, in addition to the laws that the Pharisees had created throughout the centuries, she in every way should have been killed. So what does Jesus do? He says to the people gathering, okay, cool, you guys are referencing Leviticus. Uh, for those of you who, who have followed every law in there, yeah, go ahead, let's, let's start tossing some, some rocks. Show off your throwing arm. If you're perfect, if you, if you also don't deserve death in some way, let's go ahead. Let's start warming up, guys. Let's do a little game of toss. And suddenly the rocks start dropping. And what does Jesus do? He kneels down. He looks her in the eye, this woman who was rightfully condemned, and he says, you are forgiven. Go and sin no more. If your entire existence was based around keeping those laws and teaching others about those laws, Jesus is a problem. And so the Pharisees want nothing more than to tear him down because they had this understanding of their world and how God interacted with it. And that's what they were trying to enforce. Pause. Because there's something that we can learn from that. Because when you look at the Pharisees, they were so concerned about their preconceived notions. They were so concerned about how they interpreted things. They were so concerned about their world that they thought it mattered more than their God. They were so concerned with how they understood things to be that they weren't listening when God was talking to them. Rather than seeing this man who was literally fulfilling prophecy right in front of them, who raised somebody from the dead, rather than saying, they go, maybe he's the Messiah. Instead, they said, no, 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 I'm offended. We have to do something about this. We have to take this guy down. See, rather than pondering that maybe God was trying to speak to them, they dug their heels in and doubled down in their understanding of things. But they're not alone. <laughs> the Pharisees aren't alone in this. I mean, you look at the Jewish people. They thought that Jesus coming in was going to be a king for them in their time. They were more concerned about their world than what God was speaking to them. Look at the disciples. You have Peter who denies Christ three times because he's concerned about what's going to happen to him. He's more concerned about his world than what God's trying to do in his world. You look at Judas who, who, who was more concerned about money he chastises a woman who's anointing Jesus saying, hey, hey, that oil you're using is pretty expensive. We could make a pretty penny for that stuff. He was more concerned about his world and what he wanted in it than what God was trying to say to him. And then there's poor Pontius Pilate. I say poor Pontius Pilate because there are so many figures in this story and yet Pontius Pilate's the only one who's mentioned in Apostles' Creed. Like he, he just, his name because it's thrown through the mud. He tried to let Jesus go. He wanted nothing more than to let Jesus go. You read the account and he's like, guys, he, he's innocent? No, no, okay. Hey, by the way, he's innocent? No, I found no fault in this man. Just wanted the record to show that I have no problem with him. But in the end, he was more concerned with his political standing among the Jewish people, among the constituents. He was more concerned with his voting base than doing the right thing. And so his name will forever be associated with the death of God. 
See, they were more concerned about their world than what God was trying to say to them. What's God trying to say to you? How is God trying to speak to you? What are you saying matters more than what God is trying to say? Maybe you think your pride matters more than picking up the phone and calling that person to start fixing the broken relationship. Maybe you think your pride is too much to, to accept a lesser job because you just need to get food on the table. Maybe you think that your understanding of the world is too much to try and accommodate other people. What are you saying that your world matters more than, than God is trying to say to you? See, because God's trying to speak. And it's not always going to be in a big procession with hosannas and palm trees. Sometimes it's going to be in a quiet whisper. Sometimes it's going to be something that, that you see and you go, huh, how is God trying to speak to you? As we move this week through Holy Week, you're going to see uh, Passover as Jesus comes together and sits at a table and breaks bread with the person that he knew already betrayed him. And yet he still washed his feet too. We're going to see Good Friday where Jesus willingly gives himself up to be arrested, to go through a sham trial where he knows the outcome. And then as the only per perfect person to ever live, goes to the cross and dies so that we can live, so that we have the opportunity to have a new life. And then we get to see Easter that matters, where the women go to the tomb and they find that it's empty and they get to be the first people on the face of the planet to proclaim the gospel that Jesus is alive. How's God trying to speak to you? How's God trying to speak through you? Because people need to hear that message. There's somebody in your life, promise you, that needs to hear that message. Maybe you're concerned because they, they might look down on me. Maybe I'll say the wrong thing. Maybe, maybe it'll offend them. God's trying to speak to you and through you. Don't let your world get in the way. So my friends, my challenge to you is to listen. To take this week and listen. To take in the story of God, the story of Holy Week and let God speak because he is real and he loves you and nothing is going to change that. And he wants you to know that and he wants everyone in this world to know how much he loves them. So let's get out of the way. Let's let our world get out of the way and let God speak. Amen? Amen.